Father, as we reflect on our world and our lives, we know there is so much that is challenging, that feels out of control, that feels chaotic, that is spoilt by our own sin and weakness and brokenness and by that of those around us. But we thank you that we have here words of life and hope. And we pray very much that by your Holy Spirit you would speak into our hearts, into our lives, into our world as we hear your voice now through your word. And might that draw us to trust in you, to live for you, to be totally confident of security in you when we trust in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may you live in interesting times. Have you heard of that? Uh, quote, it is apparently an English translation of a kind of Chinese proverb, um, although that maybe it might also actually have been made up by a 19th century English speechwriter who wanted something exotic to say, uh, apparently. So we can't be sure, maybe somebody who's Mandarin speaker will know for sure. Uh, but the point is, these words are supposed to be uh, not quite what they appear. May you live in interesting times is reputed to be a curse not a blessing. That's the point. See, the point is, uninteresting times are usually far safer and peaceful for all concerned. Interesting times are times that are best avoided, and in fact, to be wished only on your enemies. A few years ago, people said that millennials, those who were under the age of 18 um, in the year 2000, um, that, 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 that generation were the most anxious generation. But now, actually, what they say is that the most anxious generation is the one that has followed that millennial generation, the Generation Z or Generation I, whatever you want to call it, those who are now kind of teenagers up to early 20s. Digital natives. Anxiety fueled, no doubt, by lives lived on social media, in a turbulent world, turbulent governments, climate, international relations, where nothing is fixed, nothing seems certain, everything keeps changing. And in fact, actually all of us of any age and generation are increasingly marked by words that start with dis, disquiet about the world and its future, disillusionment about people, and institutions that we thought that we could trust, but we feel have let us down. Discontentment. Life on the big scale or the small scale is not, what it, not quite what it ought to be, or so it feels. And into that disordered disarray of disquiet, this morning we, we possibly have the most important and life-changing words that we can ever hear. Words that change everything about our future based on what's already happened in the past and that in turn changes everything now. And even in the midst of whatever chaos is gripping our minds and our hearts this Sunday or gripping our world this summer, 
It's just four words, in fact, and, and they're there in verse 31. God is for us. God is for us. Brothers and sisters, if you're trusting in Jesus today, strap in, because we have quite a ride through these wonderful concluding verses in these most wonderful of chapters that we've been studying. If that's not you yet, though, and you're not, you wouldn't say that you're trusting in Jesus, well, welcome. But you also need to strap in, <clears throat> because the Apostle Paul is going to give you the hard sell on why following Jesus is the best decision you could ever make. What then should we say in response to this, to these things, says Paul in, in verse 31? In one sense, as he asks that question, he's looking back on the whole letter, everything he's said so far. As he's outlined the problem facing human beings, the problem of our sin, the solution provided by Jesus in his death. But more narrowly, we heard David last time unpacking for us the particular way that what he's been saying applies to the question of suffering, verses 28 to 30. How we can be confident in all things, even when we suffer, that God is working for good, for our good, that his plan will not fail. That was, the, it was that golden chain in verses 29 and 30, foreknown, predestined, conformed to Jesus' likeness. And, among, and those he predestined, verse 30, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. As he moves from eternity past to eternity future, God is going to get us there. Be confident. And so, verse 31, what then can we say in response to this? Extraordinary security and certainty for the future. And Paul throws out a list of what John Stott a 20th century preacher calls five unanswerable questions in these verses. Did you hear the five unanswerable questions? They're unanswerable because they mostly contain their answer within them. They're kind of rhetorical questions that he throws out. It's like, yeah, you can't answer these, can you? And that first question is the headline. If God is for us, who can be against us? And just note, as he says that, what he's not saying, what he doesn't say. He doesn't merely say, who can be against us? That's not his question. Who can be against us? Because if, if we ask each other that question, well, we'll come up with a big list of things, won't we, that could be against us, and that often are, and often feel like they are, whether it's COVID or family strife or uncertainties and worry or summer holiday disasters or global warming or war or fuel shortages, or whatever it might be. But all those things feel like they definitely could be against us. But put that in the context of the rest of what he says. Put the first half of the question in, and everything changes. If God is for us, and that has been the argument of the previous eight chapters, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who actually can be against us? Can any of those things, big or small, can any of those things win? That is Paul's argument. And in these final verses, he brings together much of what he said over the last eight chapters and the last four chapters in particular. And it's about the total security that those who trust in Jesus enjoy. God is for us. We have total security with God through Jesus' death and total security with God through Jesus' love. And you can see those two headings on the back of the notice sheet if you want to follow or take notes. But they're also... Here's the first one on the screen. Total security with God through Jesus' death. Verses 
31 to 34. So he has three quick-fire questions that follow that first, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, uh, and behind it is this question, how can we know that God is not going to change his mind? He's not going to drop us. He's not going to dump us when we prove to be less than faithful, less than perfect, when we mess up. He asks that question in three different ways, but his answer each time is simple. The reason we know that God is not going to drop us, Jesus died. That's how we know he won't drop us. That's how we know he'll get his plan done. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, this is actually one of my favorite Bible verses. I don't know about you. You'll hear me quote it often. Um, the all things that he promises, of course, is not some kind of you know, North London dream with the house and the job and the lifestyle. It's way better than that. It is specifically the all things that he's been talking about, not least in verses 29 and 30. The golden chain that joins our present to eternity. Glory is coming when Jesus returns. And that changes everything now. But how do we know God's going to get us there? How do we know he's not going to change his mind? How do we know he's not going to go, do you know what? I'm not going to carry on with you. You just aren't good enough. Look at the price that he's paid already, says Paul. That's the answer. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You know, it's like when your favorite band announces an exclusive, intimate, acoustic performance. There's only 100 tickets available. And you're thinking, oh, I so want to see them, but I'm never going to get hold of one of those tickets. It'll be impossible. And even if I could, the tickets are so expensive, I won't be able to afford them. And then miracle of miracles, a friend gets hold of two tickets, pays for them, and sends you one. And when you hold the ticket in your hand and it's paid for, <clears throat> it's no longer wishful thinking, is it? It's unbelievably going to happen. Your friend has paid and made it possible. So you see, it's a simple thing, but that is the logic of what Paul is saying. If you're worried about whether God will follow through, he's already paid the price. It's already been paid. The tickets have already been bought. They've been given to you. It's yours. And that is the price that secures all the things that he promises. The hard bit has happened. Now just wait and it will come. You know, God is not going to turn around and say, I can't be bothered with you anymore. Because he gave his son. And if he'd done that and then turned around and said he can't be bothered with you anymore, it would be implying that that price that he paid was a waste. Do you see? But we say, you know, I'm, I'm such a sinner. You know, I mess up and God can't be interested in someone like me. And so Paul says twice, who will bring any charge against those who's got, that goes who God has chosen? Who is the one who condemns? Jesus has died, and that changes everything. You see, God is the judge. He sent his son to take the judgment you deserve. His son rose from the dead. He's alive. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding. He's praying for us, can you see? And this is an echo of where chapter 8 began. There is now no condemnation. See, it sounds too good to be true, but Jesus' death in the past, in history, a verifiable, witnessed event, it guarantees it. 
Blaise Pascal had a, a great line about convincing people that Christianity is true. And he said, first, make people want to believe it's true and then show them that it is. And that is what Paul is doing here. Can you see? See, look how secure you are if you're trusting in Jesus. You are loved. You are accepted. <clears throat> Nothing can separate you, as we will see in a moment. Can that possibly be true? Because if it is, it is so wonderful. Yes, it is, because it depends on what Jesus has already done. You see, you are totally secure. You can go back and look into, this is an event that happened in history. There are eyewitnesses that saw it. This man died. The, the Bible writers help us to make sense of what Jesus' death means, but we can know that it's something that happened in history. And so this thing that sounds so attractive and think, yeah, I want this to be true, we can know it is true because of what Jesus has already done. Now, the thing is, of course, at face value, our culture doesn't actually have a problem with believing that God would accept us in this way, actually, when you think about it. Because actually we spend a lot of time telling one another, you know, you're great as you are. You are inherently wonderful. You know, you just be you. You do you. You, you know, you don't need to change. And if we're not careful, we can hear the Christian message as simply echoing that kind of unchallenging affirmation that you're already wonderful. But remember, there's so much more to this sense of security than simply that kind of message that our culture often gives us. Because the problem with the way that our culture just says, you're, oh, you're wonderful, let's affirm you as you are, it's all fine until we're reminded of reality. Because actually there are times when being who you are and doing what you want is a really terrible idea. Isn't that right? You know, we don't want those who think invading other countries is a great idea to be who they are. We don't want those who traffic desperate refugees for personal gain to be who they are. And if we're honest, there are times when we see what comes out of our own hearts, in the way that we treat others, in the way that we put ourselves first, the instinctive reactions we have to situations that are ugly, and we'd be horrified if people really knew what was going on in our hearts and what we're thinking and feeling. Do we really want to be who we are? But in this letter, you see, Paul has spent significant time saying on the one hand, yes, that is exactly who you are. But that is why Jesus died. See, and it's at this point that our culture actually has a kind of split personality. Because on the one hand, it wants to say, you know, you're great. You just be you. You, you carry on. Don't, you know, don't let anybody tell you not to be who you are. But then when someone kind of falls from grace, then forgiveness is impossible. You're cancelled. That's that. See, C.S. Lewis put it like this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they actually have something to forgive. And yet that is what God has done in Jesus. Do you see? That is what God has done. Even to sinners like us. So we can be totally open and honest about who we are and that that falls short of God's standards for us. It falls short of our own standards for us. And we don't have to hide that. We can be honest about that and yet know 
That is why Jesus died. And that means we are totally secure when we put our trust in Jesus. So do you see? Total security through Jesus' death. That's verses 31 to 34. And then from the remainder of the the passage, total security with God through Jesus' love. So the final question, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, of course, it seems that there are so many things that in principle could separate us from Christ's love. Well, sin is the major barrier, but we've heard, we've heard that Jesus has dealt with that. That cannot separate us from God's love. Even the way that we consciously rebel against the God who made us and hurt those around us. No, that cannot separate us. We've heard that. But there are other things too that can make us feel like God is far away and distant and unloving and uncaring. And Paul lists a whole bunch of things. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And if you read Paul's account of his own experience as a Christian in Acts, and and, and there's a bit in the final chapters of 2 Corinthians as well, you know when he lists these things, he's not speaking theoretically. These are all things you can find in his life, things that happened to him. And then we heard the second reading, Psalm 44, and he quotes that here, verse 36. That's one of the verses from Psalm 44. And as you heard that psalm, did you hear the psalmist kind of crying out and saying, look, this is, this is not fair, this hurts. Why is it like this? For your sake, we face death. This, for your sake, that's God. For, you, for God's sake, we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. You know, we thought we were trusting. We thought we were doing the right thing. We thought we were trusting in God. And yet here we are and we're suffering. And so we're struggling to experience God's love. See, Paul is honest about what life is like. The psalmists are honest about what life is like. And maybe we know this too. Maybe we know in our own lives about things that have happened or are happening and certainly that may happen in the future that make it feel like God's love is far from us. I can think of two pastor friends both godly Christians been faithful in their ministry and they're both battling serious potentially life-limiting cancer many Christians in other countries of course know suffering on on a different scale as well the fear of being dragged from their homes of losing livelihood simply for meeting together like we're doing this morning and, and in lesser ways as well, of course, the pandemic and all that's gone with that has left many of us physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted. And, and maybe we're just longing, you know, just longing for, that, for the holiday. Just hoping that's going to that's bring the much-needed rest. But knowing that the reality is that, of course, holidays often bring troubles of their own and don't deliver on what they promise. You see, in all of these things, it can feel like the love of God is a distant thing. But what does Paul say? He says, no, we are more than conquerors. Now, what does he mean by that? He means, well, of course, we feel like the conquered ones, don't don't, don't we? You know, we feel like we're defeated. We feel like we're wrung out. We feel like we're the prisoners on show for the world to laugh at. 
as our conquerors parade us through the streets. But he says, no, it's the opposite. And in fact, we're not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. The tables have not just been turned, they have been more than turned through him who loved us. Why is that? Because there is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Perhaps today we find it hard to feel that, but Paul says, look, verse 38, you know, can death, can, you know, so many people live in fear of death, can that separate you from God's love? No, it is the doorway to eternity with him, because Jesus died and rose from the dead. Can angels or demons and kind of hidden powers behind the scenes know that they've been defeated at the cross? And he goes on and he gets to anything else in all creation. No, there is nothing that can separate us. And in the middle there is the key to understanding this. He says, can the present or the future? See, the key to knowing that you are loved today is realising there will never be a tomorrow where God does not love you. If you're part of his people, if you're trusting in Jesus, that is his forever attitude towards you see that is how love works actually isn't it because love is not love if it's only for today if it's merely a kind of feeling that comes and goes well that that, you know that, that isn't actually love that you can bank on but this love that God has for his people is not merely a here and now emotion it is an eternal promise and commitment so that every day that we wake is another day to step into God's love. And knowing that his love is then guaranteed for eternity is what will transform the feeling of love for now, for today. And again, there are echoes of Paul's argument from earlier in the book. Do you remember chapter 5, if you were with us, Right, where we started this series a couple of months ago. Hope does not disappoint us, Paul wrote then, because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he's given to us. As we get clear on our total eternal security and hope that we have because Jesus has already died, we then experience God's love now by the Holy Spirit in us, even in the midst of our suffering and our circumstances, making that love real to us. So as we feel that dryness or that sense of uselessness or hopelessness or simply being wrung out by life and circumstances go to these verses list what seems to separate us now from God's love and say can it really do that look at what you've got in Christ One wise person said this, when you doubt God's goodness, when you struggle with that discontentment and disillusionment and disquiet that we began by talking about, make a list in your head or on a piece of paper, whatever works. Two columns, in the first, put what you have but don't deserve. What you have but don't deserve. And then in the second column, put what you deserve but don't have. Now, the first column, if we're honest about ourselves and conscious of what God has given us in Christ, is going to be huge, isn't it? What you have but don't deserve. And then the more I go on in my Christian life, the more I realise, you know, instinctively, I guess, you know, there are lots of things which I, I would love to have, one way or another, and, you know, so want to put in that second column, but can I really say I deserve them? 
I don't think I can. But can I list what I don't deserve but do already have in Christ? Well, absolutely I can. The preacher Mark Dever put it slightly provocatively like this. He said, anything less than hell is dance time for Christians. See, that's what we deserve. But we're not just sort of set free from the conquered category, you know, from getting what we deserve in the prison of our own sin and our own making. We're not just returned to zero, as it were, so we can start afresh. We are made more than conquerors through him who loved us. We get to enjoy so much that we do not deserve in Christ. So as we finish then, here is the one question that matters today. Do you know this God and this love that he offers us in Christ? God is for us. Who can be against us? To anyone here who knows that you're yet to trust in this Jesus who died, well, he says, come and trust him and receive what he offers. It's free. The life that he gives is the best life, the life we were created to live with him as the boss, enjoying him for eternity, so that even when we suffer, and we will in this life, we can know his love in the midst of that getting us through that to glory with him. That is what is on offer. That can be yours even today when you trust in Jesus. But if we do know this love, then Paul's aim in this letter, remember, is two things. He's concerned for the unity of God's people. He's concerned for the mission of God's people. When we grasp who we are and what we have in Christ, we are united with brothers and sisters in a way that demands we put aside our petty differences and frustrations and says, love one another in the way Christ has loved us. And that is the kind of place we want to be at St. John's. But his second aim then is mission, to tell the world of this God. You know, what are we going to do with this news that we've heard and celebrated in this glorious Romans chapter 8? You see, it's too good to keep to ourselves, isn't it? Isn't it? It's too good. Particularly in this world that is marked by disillusionment and discontentment and disquiet. How can we possibly keep this to ourselves? But I, I, don't, I don't know what to say, we, we say to ourselves. I can't possibly do that. One evangelist friend of mine says this. Just, just think about this. What do you love about Jesus? What do you, if, you're, if you're a Christian, what do you love about Jesus? There must be something. There must be lots of things. There must be things you, you've heard about here. What do you love about Jesus? And, and look for opportunities to just tell people that. It's not, it doesn't have to be a formula. It doesn't have to be sort of clever things and um, you know, clever words that you use. Just think, what do I love about Jesus? Give me, Lord, please give me opportunities to, to share that. Maybe there's a chance. Maybe a friend is sharing the hard time that they are having in, in their life. And there's a chance at an appropriate moment to say, well, when I've gone through hard times what I love about Jesus is the security and the hope that he's given me in the face of the challenges that I faced in my life I'm sure you can think of better ways to put it than that but do you see what do you love about Jesus and and then there's another question that he encourages people to, to ask 
What do you love about Jesus? What do you love about Jesus' church? You know, the community for those for, of those for whom Jesus died, united by that love, imperfect, falling short, yet seeking to be a place that models that love to one another and the world. To your friend, you can say, if, you know, if it's true, well, what I love about church is finding I can be real and I can share my challenges and be reminded by others of the extraordinary love of God in Christ that changes everything. So in these interesting times, as we look to maybe an uncertain future, we do that knowing that if we're trusting Jesus, we're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So let's go and tell the world. Let's pray now. in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, this is such good news. Help us to see that it is true because Jesus died and he rose from the dead and we can be confident of that today. And help us to believe and then to share that with the world around us that so desperately needs to hear this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.